Yeah, recording again. Hi, like, listeners. Yeah, rec- well, filming. Well, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're audio <laughs> recording, but also we're, we've got back the filming. Um, I lost my tripods last week, but I found them again. They were, like, encased in my beanbag. That's because that's you were drunk. That's unbelievable accusations that's, there, Samuel. That's why, Joe's, that's why Joe's reviews last week were just so poor. I was a mixture of hungover and a little bit still drunk. A little bit intoxicated. Yeah. How unprofessional. Yeah. Well, I had a heavy night for one of my friends' leaving parties. Fair enough, fair the enough. The night before, and then it just kept it going. I think I'd watched about three films that previous night, four the next night, just dedicated. And then you watched, as you introduced it, I went on Saturday sober to watch. Oh, yeah. As <laughs> though yeah. so that's like... Yeah. <laughs> Sober in the Saturday afternoon to watch the Neon Demon. So I'm usually pissed. Yeah. Although having said that, um, apparently, if you're a member of the Crouch End Picture House, they do welcome you with a shot of whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, you're, if you're a member, you yeah. get it. I really could have done with that before watching the Neon Demon. Yeah, just loosen you up. Yeah. Although apparently everyone liked it. Yeah. Well. Okay. So it's you know our hero. Mark Commode. <laughs> yeah, our hero Mark Commode, film of the week apparently. Yeah, he liked it. He likes coming to exportation and weird shit. I know, but this was really weird. Yeah. This was, yeah. you said you would have walked out if you didn't have to review it. I would have, yeah. yeah. It's and funny, five people walked out in the cinema. Five people walked out and there weren't that many in there. And my, yeah. my dad said to me afterwards, um, he, he didn't see it with me, but I remember speaking to him that night and uh, he said, oh, I'm thinking about going to watch The Neon Demon. And I said, great, go and watch it because I know that he would, you know, find it completely unwatchable and have to walk out. He almost walked out of a room. Yeah. Oh, well, if he's walking out of a room, then he sounds he like he'll definitely dead. be walking out of yeah. the Neon Demon. So I just wanted to... I kind of want to send people to watch it now, just to, you know, sort of... It's kind of like... We should, like, record people walking out of the Neon Demon, like, way outside a screening of it. Yeah, yeah. And, like, within ten minutes, just be like, what were your, what were your immediate thoughts? <laughs> Smart! <laughs> Filth! <laughs> Blasphemy! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should have done that. Yeah. Oh, we could still do it. We'll take a mic down to the Crouch and Picture House. Yeah. Um, so, have you seen anything good in the last two weeks apart from the cinema films we're going to be doing? Uh, I rewatched Love and Mercy, Brilliant. which is, you know, people who know me all know the show. No, I absolutely adore and will promote to anyone who will listen. Um, so, this is a film about Brian Wilson, who was, I wouldn't say lead singer because, you know, they're all. Is the point about the Beach Boys is they're all in harmony, he, he, but he's, he's the creative scene of the creative drive, the and, creative ge- and genius, yeah, yeah, behind the Beach Boys. Um, so it's a film about him, and it's done in two parts. Where um, when he's recording pet sounds and also starting to go insane, basically, mm. played by Paul Dano in kind of late sixties. Paul Dano, who looks exactly like Brian Wilson did back then. I yeah, mean, it's uncanny how similar they look. Yeah, yeah, really weird. Um, and then also in the 80s, uh, played by John Cusack, who is um, Brian Wilson in what seems this slightly catatonic state, um, and meets Elizabeth Banks. I love Elizabeth Banks. Yeah, I that was it, the it, film it, where I fell in love with Elizabeth Banks. Yeah, but like her character in that is an absolute... Yeah, character. yeah, I know, that's yeah, what I mean. And you would fall in love with her. Yeah, she's just gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, and... <sighs> Elizabeth... <laughs> Um, so dreamy but that's one of my favourite probably my favourite film of last year um, yeah I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd really recommend year. it I saw it recently on Joe's recommendation and um, excellent uh, it actually brings nicely our genre this week um, yes. our new genre this week which is kind of rockumentaries yeah um, well actually that's no, kind of inaccurate it's, this is a f- the second part of the show is rockumentary you could say well yeah but the but it's a film, it's, it's a feature film, it's not a documentary. Mm. Um, it's almost famous, the 2000, I think it's 2000. 2000 yeah. yeah, 2000 film directed by Cameron Crowe, um, which we're going to be talking about, which has a lot of basis in um, real life situations, yeah. but is in itself a fictional account. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got that coming up in the show. We've got the new release, the BFG, which yeah. is the new Spielberg film, which I went to see, surprise, surprise. Just, listeners, from that tone... If I sound a little bit bitter... Yeah. It's because I've been to see the brand new Testament. I saw that with you. Oh, yeah, you did. That was good, actually. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I don't know why you're bitter about that. That was I had to go and see Son of Saul, though. You saw Son of Saul, and um, what was the other one you saw? You saw, like, three subtitle films in a week. Yeah, I did. I can't remember what the other one was called. 
Did he see Mustang or did he? Yeah, I saw Mustang. Yeah, that was the other one. Yeah, yeah. Mustang. Yeah, which yeah. is good, and I think it's going to be on Commode's top five of the year. Yeah, actually, we, that's one we didn't mention because um, Mark Commode has done his uh, films ten to six of the best films of the year so far. Um, High Rises in there. Joe reviewed that. Sort of, you're a bit I had some reservations I, I about could, that. I could admire, but I couldn't like. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because it. It's I'm, not a nice film. No. But but then again, does that make it... You know, like Room. Would you say Room is a nice film? No. Uh, I'd say... It's, I mean, it's a great I film. Really and I couldn't read... And I love it, you know. Okay, but the thing about Room is you're totally connected with both characters mm. in their journey. I couldn't really connect with any of the characters properly. But I think you, that's I, essential. I, 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 I think I feel like connect... you're, always, you're, you're viewing it from afar. You're like... Okay, this is what's happening to them. I don't really care about them. None of them are that engaging. The lot of them pretty awful human beings. I'll just see how it plays out. Room, on the other hand, may not be initially the nicest subject matter, mm. but you're drawn in completely into Jack's world and into Mar. You know, you care about what happens to them completely. But that, but that kind of begs the question: Do you have to like a character to have an emotional connection with them? I mean, I, Roger Dodger. Roger Dodger. I, you know, the character is Roger's odious, an absolute scumbag. But I still really kind of felt for him in a way and felt yeah. a connection with him. And yeah. Do you know what I mean? But that's a film where. So I would argue that you do need some kind of, in almost every case, to really yeah. love a film. You need an emotional connection yeah. with some of the characters or some of the subject matter. Um, you know whether that's a positive connection or not. Yeah. Know? And I, I can understand what you mean about High Rise. I, I didn't want to watch it myself. And I, I can imagine sitting there thinking, I'm just not connecting with this on any level, you know, and therefore finding it hard to worry about the outcome. Yeah, uh, I, could, I couldn't really connect with it emotionally. Like, it was, a, it was a film that kind of dealt with its subject matter well, and I thought it was timely. Um, I felt some of it was a little on the nose, Luke Evans, I found really, really annoying. I thought he was a good, bit of a caricature. Is he the one that plays? Who's in um, the Hobbit? Is he? Uh, the, he was in um, the film with uh, Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool. I don't think. Isn't he the so. villain in Deadpool? Maybe. I'm not sure, but he is. I don't think he is, he's in the Hobbit as the guy, like the man, not the dwarf or the elf who lives in Dale and fires the big arrow thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you mean. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's alright, but he's a bit of a caricature for me. Sienna Miller's quite is good in it. Jeremy Irons, I'll watch anything. Yeah, Jeremy Irons. He's just, you know, very magnetic screen presence. Yeah. Sienna Miller, uh, she was great in American Sniper. Yeah, she's had a bit of a... Renaissance. Sienna-sance. Yeah, because she was thought as just awful. Yeah, just rubbish and basically a model who'd somehow got into films. Yeah. And then she'd kind of got a reconnaissance of her own. Yeah, so. yeah, Prove it, proving her worth. Um, so, yeah, I saw. I, uh, anyway, back to films we recently watched. Hmm. I rewatched Love and Mercy and I watched a really weird film. You'll be able to find it on Netflix, but I wouldn't recommend it, called um, Object of My Affection. And I, found, I was looking for just like, it was late in the evening, I wanted something that was nice, I was looking for kind of like rom-coms. We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there. Um, and it has Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. And I like Paul Rudd, you know, mm. he's, he's like old chat. Jennifer Aniston, you know, she's been doing some okay things. Um, but, so it was, and the Netflix description is something, you know, Netflix, like, blurbs are always rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Put you off any film. Yeah, exactly. But it was something along the lines of like, He's gay and she's pregnant. They're made for each other. <laughs> kind of not. I can't believe you clicked on this. I mean, seriously. But I think it might have even been the like, icon picture. It's like, oh, that's like a nice picture of Paul Rudd. He's like a primary school teacher. That's a nice picture of Paul Rudd. That's like, I'm going to watch an hour and a half of Paul Rudd. And yeah, Jennifer I got about an hour in. Uh, me and my girlfriend were like, um, this is ridiculous, but we have to see this through. Yeah, yeah. We can't turn it off halfway through. Yeah. It could I, have it been the of, last half an hour. Could have been amazing. I think it, and it wasn't. And it wasn't. Um, it was one of these films that I think, um, and it's not like bad intention. Like it's got, and I think uh, what well, apparently Six Feet Under is supposed to be the first uh, like non stereotypical portrayal of gay people um, on in film or TV. They're just like. People who live normal everyday lives and aren't like super camp or ridiculous or mm. you know, like Freddie Mercury uh, happen to be gay. Um, and I felt like in that respect it was successful because that was Paul Rudd's 
character and the other gay characters are like that Hmm. Um, but I feel it was this film made in the 90s like oh this is what family's going to be like it's going to be like a woman and you know she gets pregnant by some other guy but she wants her like gay roommate who's who's known just a few weeks to raise it with her Um, and so that was the plot kind of the plot but it's like the editing is really weird there's like it jumps between time periods in the film without really explaining much of what's going on it's an odd film Hmm. Object of my affection. I think it was like 1998 or something. Not recommended. No. No. But... Well, well, Jennifer Aniston, I can't think of one film that I've liked her in. Probably the best film, Jennifer Aniston film, is Long Game Polly. The Good Girl is an odd film. It's not a typical Jennifer Aniston. Well, The Iron Giant, she plays... Oh, she is, and that's a great film. She does a voice in that, and she's good in that. Okay, yeah. We found the ultimate Jennifer Aniston performance. Exactly. The Iron Giant. The mother. I forgot about that. The voice of the mother in The Iron Giant. Exactly. The one who named her child Hogarth. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Um, Okay, Uh, poor Jennifer. There we go. Sorry, Jen. Her career is never going to be... You were fantastic in The Iron Giant. Yeah, you... (laughs) The biggest credit. Um... Not so good in Mother's Day. No. But then again, but, but no one really came out of Mother's Day unscathed. It sounded like she didn't have a great deal to work with. No, I don't think anyone had a great deal to work no. with, even the cinematographer. No. But I don't. Did you know this, Samuel? That Gary Marshall died like last week. No. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! So I, I put a tweet out. Clearly, you didn't see it. Saying, you know, no. Gary Marshall will remember you for Pretty Woman, not Mother's Day. Not Mother's Day. Yeah. Shit. And he was behind Happy Days as well. I didn't realise that. Yeah. I didn't realise he died. How yeah. did he die? I don't know. He was in his, he was pretty old, isn't his age? Sure, I feel really, like, bad. No, I Do you reckon he heard the podcast? And died of grief. <laughs> <laughs> died of a broken heart. Yeah. <laughs> he loved the show before, though. He was that mysterious listener. I couldn't believe I'd slammed his latest yeah. crime against humanity. Yeah. Poor Gary. Okay, well... Let's dedicate this episode to Gary Marshall, to Gary Marshall and, yeah. and Pretty Woman. Exactly. Remember the good times. Exactly. Forget Valentine's Day, yeah. Leap Year. What was the other one? New Year's, New Year's Eve. Eve. Yeah. And Mother's Day. Day. <laughs> but Pretty Woman is possibly the ultimate rom-com. Yeah, there we go. Well, yeah, and four weddings. Okay. Yeah, well done, Gary. Yeah, well done, Gary. Well done, Rest Gary. in peace. Okay. Um, okay, coming up now, we have Big Blockbuster out this week which is Star Trek Star Trek yesterday Joe's going to be bringing that to you soon stay tuned coming right up week which is Star Trek Star Trek yesterday Joe's going to be bringing that to you soon stay tuned coming right up Welcome back to Everyone's a Critic. So yesterday evening, around six, um, I went to see Star Trek Beyond uh, at the Crouch and Picture House. As I, I feel like that's just standard now, isn't it? Really? Yeah, we don't need to give a shout out. Yeah, we don't. Although I mean, unless... Standard know. as in you going to that cinema or standard as you seeing every decent blockbuster since the show began? Both. I feel like I see most of the films at uh, the Picture House. Because it's like a similar price to the Everyman, but nicer screen. £7 on a Monday, apparently. Uh, yeah, and I saw this yesterday, £7 on a Monday, £5 for members. Fair enough. Yeah, so, but, um, fairly cheap as well. But you have, a fair, you have a fair, you've, you're kind of the, the go-to sci-fi man of the duo. Yeah, well, after I saw that double bill of uh, Alien and Alien, Aliens. Aliens, you've seen Captain America. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I'm like the... Mainstream blockbuster. You are. Now. I'm like the weird niche films that no one's ever heard of. Mustang and. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm not watching those films, I'm hey, watching Joe, films like along. Mother's Day yeah. and Alvin and the Chipmunks. Come along to see um, the Brand New Testament with me. Yeah, you. yeah. And I'm glad I did. Come, like come again. <laughs> the Brand New Testament. It was a good film. It was a good film, actually. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I saw Star Trek yesterday at the Crouch and Picture House. Please sponsor us. Um, which is the third instalment of like the, the reboot of Star Trek. So the first one was just Star Trek. The second one was Star Trek Into Darkness, which was, the, there was a bit controversy as to whether there should be a colon, because... If it's what, Star in the Into Darkness? Yeah, Star Trek colon Into Darkness, or Star Trek Into Darkness. I like that. 
I prefer the second like one. Like Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's an int- it's a... Star Trek Into Darkness, yeah. yeah. I don't think I saw Star Trek Into Darkness. It's good, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch as the villain. Yeah, I definitely. I saw the first one. Haven't seen the second one. What did you think of the first one? Yeah, I really liked it's it. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, I really liked yeah. it. I mean, Zachary Quinto is just brilliant. Yeah, uh, we're talking about Zachary Quinto. Well, I'll talk about it a bit uh, later. So this one, so the first two were done by J.J. Abrams, who is the guy behind Lost and Fringe and the newest Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. which is a huge success. I loved it. I loved it. Um, and you know, because of that, because of the huge commitments of helming a Star Wars movie, he couldn't you know, direct the latest Star Trek. But the success of the first two Star Treks is obviously why he was hired to do the new Star Wars. Mm. You know, both you know commercially and critically. Pro- proven himself in that genre. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're be- probably as close able... as you can get in terms yeah. of franchises. Being able to helm a, uh, a reboot or a sequel after a long time of a sci-fi a franchise. sci-fi. With, with a huge amount of fan pressure on him, successfully. I tell you what he should have directed. He should have directed the Independence Day sequel. Oh, man. Wouldn't that have been amazing? No, but I think it had to be Roland Emmerich, I think, probably had. You haven't seen first it, mate. No. No, I mean, he probably should have done, but I think it's fair enough that Roland Emmerich had I just had think J.J. Abrams, he just brings a new touch to a series that at one point you think, you know, after the second set of Star Wars films, mm. you just think, Jesus Christ, don't let George Lucas near the director's chair again yeah. on a Star Wars film, you know. But the thing about Star the first, you know, we're doing Star Trek, I'll come back to this. Okay, the thing about Star Wars that most people don't realise is that George Lucas didn't actually direct The Empire Strikes Back I know. and Return of the Jedi. I know. Which is why they're better. He produced them, but produced he didn't them. direct them. Yeah. And then he, but he directed A New Hope. The second one. He directed uh, the second one. Yeah, but he directed the original, the okay, the prequel. Yeah, one, two, three trilogy. Yeah. yeah, which is the first one. A New Hope and Phantom Menace: Attack of the Clones. Exactly. The second. Of the Sith. The second lot. Yeah. Which are cack. Which is your favorite out of those three ones? Out of those three, I think as standalone film, actually, Revenge of the Sith is okay. It's just like, as the film that is supposed to be the centrepiece that connects all the missing dots, it could have been a lot better. I think Attack of the Clones is the worst. I See, that's my favourite really? one. Really? Yeah. Mm. Natalie Portman's in that most. I, I really is that like basically why you like yeah, it most? Yeah, big fan. Yeah. Of no, Phantom Menace is worse. It's got more Jar Jar Binks in it than any other Okay, one. it has more Jar Jar Binks. Um, but I think it's... That's ended the argument, though. Yeah, I can't even talk about that at all. Anyway, back to Star Trek. So, this one isn't directed by J.J. Abrams. It's directed by Justin Lin, who's most famous for um, directing a couple of the Fast and Furious films. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I guess they went to him, you know, like, you know, you know how to put an action set piece together. Yeah. They made a whole load of money in, you know, and he was kind of guy, he's the guy who resurrected... Um, the Fast and Furious series from kind of stepping in. So he did Tokyo Drift. He didn't direct the first one, was so. Not the first two. Because okay. the first one was like this B-movie. The, the irony of the Fast and Furious is that... That was the, massive when I was young. Is the first one was actually this surprise B-movie success. And now it's turned into the epitome of like churn it out every couple of years <laughs> sequel. Mm, mm. Um, it was Vin Diesel, wasn't it? Vin Diesel and um, that guy Paul who Walker. He, he died then. Yeah, he did. Yeah. In a crash. Yeah, but it wasn't on set, was it? No, he was just driving a car. Jesus, I guess presumably fairly fast. Hmm. Um. So those, there, yeah, those films, and then he did Fast and Furious, which was like the fourth one, but with back with the original cast, which kind of rebooted the whole series, right? Okay. And turned it into this like now hugely successful mm. franchise mm. so they thought you know Justin Lin safe pair of hands knows how to put on an action set piece um, so third in the series and the plot we're six minutes in oh, we've, we've only got I'm the just, director oh god that's like the first thing that you mentioned yeah okay so, so what happens in Star Trek so uh, opens with um, kind of the there's a bit before that the captain's log and he's like, we've been with day, you know, 300, etc. out of you know, a 900-day mission um, into space. And basically about how it actually gets a bit boring when you're exploring an ever-expanding universe. Yeah, because um, you're never going to catch up with it. No, you're never going to catch up with it. 
um, and a lot of the time you're just spent floating around. Um, so you know you've got this feeling that Captain Kirk, who's played well in the first two by Chris Pine, I think he gets the whole kind of swaggering mm. um, thing that you know, William Shatner brought to it. Mm. Uh, is just kind of getting a little bored. I like, I like that. Yeah. Just, just getting bored. Flying yeah. around in space. Like, Fucking hell. Yeah, What's I all this about? How long have I been here for? <laughs> um, <laughs> but they, uh, so they land on this kind of big space, space station type thing. It looks... If anyone's seen Elysium... Um, it looks, Yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks a little bit like the space station in there. Okay. So they land there and then... Um, they basically get the equivalent of a distress call, which, you know, they're the only ship that can navigate um, back to this planet to, you know, provide the distress call and the, the best crew, etc. So they go and see that, they get attacked, they get stranded on this planet, and the plot unfolds. I don't want to reveal too much okay, about fine. that from there. So they go and rescue, they go and try and rescue people, they yeah. get stranded on a planet that they don't know. Yeah, or with these people here who seem intent on... Sounds like the beginning of Aiden. Receive a distress call. Go yeah, planet. It's a little different from Alien um, because because they're they're on the planet. Sigourney Weaver's not in it. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver's not. So imagine Sigourney Weaver replaced with Chris Pine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just take a second. Yeah, so they're so they're stranded on this planet and they're kind of divided up into little groups. So Zachary Quinto, we're going to say Spock and Bones. If Star Trek fans all you know, Zachary Quinto and Carl Urban. Um, are stranded together, and they're they're a really funny pair. And that's kind of those are the most enjoyable bits of the film. Mm. Um, and Chris Pine and um, Chekhov, who's played by the late Anton Yelchin, who um, died about a month ago, I think ish. Why is everyone dying on this? No, he was like twenty seven. That's quite sad actually. Jesus. Yeah, he was some freak accident. We got you know, run over by his car or something. Oh my god! Parking it. Right. Well, let's dedicate. Yeah. A third of this show to him as well. Yeah, we're running Clark, out. We're running out, Clark, of sh- we're, we're running out of show to dedicate. Yeah. Um, so the good bit is that it's interesting ideas. That it's about kind of you know, say about loneliness and about boredom and the ever expanding idea of space and how much of it can we know? Are we constantly catching up with the fact that it's, it's expanding? Hmm. Um, and about clip. peace and conflict. Um, and also, it's funny. Hmm. I think. Hmm. Um, the interplay between Spock and Bones, which I'll, I'll play a short clip of now. Actually. Okay, cool. I think you should have this back. Draw it belong to your mother. It is not in the Vulcan custom to receive again that which was given as a gift. You guys break up? What'd you do? A typically reductive inquiry, Doctor. You know, Spock, if an Earth girl says uh, it's me, not you, it's definitely you. So that was a short clip from the beginning of Star Trek. I like that. Um, that between Bones and Spock. And yeah, uh, I actually think Carl Urban is a hero. Um, he is. He was in Lord of the Rings... Have you seen Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Yeah. I know some people haven't, though. It's weird. Obviously, you know, you're a big film fan. You would have mm. seen it. So, you know, in um, The Two Towers, yeah. you have Theoden. I don't know the name. He's basically one. the king of Rohan. The old guy who becomes revived. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. He's his, like, nephew. He comes in riding at the end with Gandalf. Yeah. But you wouldn't recognise him because he's got all the hair and the beard. But he's also in Dread, which is, like, the newest Judge Dread movie. Right. Which is basically uh, kind of... Uh, a similar plotline to the raid, where you know we have to go into this big building. Sixty-four um, stories. Sixty-four stories, yeah. Uh, but the thing about Dread is that there's an old Judge Judge Dread movie in like the '90s with Sylvester Stallone. Obviously, if you've got a big hero in that, the whole point about Judge Dread from the comics is he has this visor around his face that he never takes off, and it's just, just his jawline. But if you have Sylvester Stallone in it, obviously he's going to take the helmet off at some point. Mm. But the move, the makers of Dread were like, no. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to fuck up all the fans and the fan base. It's just going to be Carl Urban's jawline. But he's good at that. And he's, he's very funny in this. He's kind of... He's, some people could see him as like a bit hammy and a bit kind of like over-delivering the jaw, jaw like mm. The one-liner's like, 
you know, it's when they say Earth Girl says it's not me, it's you, it's definitely you. And yeah, pats yeah. on the back. Um, yeah. and they I, th- I thought that was well acted. It was well acted, yeah. I mean, I, I actually saw that clip um, earlier on today because I watched the comedian. Yeah. But um, yeah, I laughed both times. Yeah, and yeah, his face when he's like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and of course Zachary Quinto is great and I could see them striking up a good chemistry yeah and the whole contrast between his like you know brash southern charm and yeah, Zachary yeah. Quinto's like um, Vulcan like everything must be logical yeah yeah uh, and there's a bit where um, I can't it, Zachary Quinto says some oh he's been like wounded he's like I can go he's like it's short horse shit you can go he's like I struggled to see the relation of feces to this matter oh yeah 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 <laughs> Um, so I've yeah, heard, I've heard that as well. Yeah, so that's that's really good. There's a good interplay between those, and I think they're really funny. I think those are the best bits between them. Hmm. Um, and you have a genuine connection between, um, or you know, to the characters that you you've grown to like throughout the series. You know, the whole crew of um, Kirk and Spark and Chekhov, um, Sulu, Bones, Uhura and Scotty, played by Simon Pegg. And Simon Pegg's actually co-wrote this latest one. Yeah, yeah, I heard that, um, yeah. And it's, you know... You can and he's, see... he's a fan as well. Yeah, so it's, and it's he's a, a dream fan. come true for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he wrote, he co-wrote um, the Cornetto trilogy, as he will of Shaun of the Dead, Hothfuzz, yeah, yeah, World's yeah. End, yeah. etc. So yeah, he has experience writing, and you, you can see his stamp on that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's fun. Mm. You know, it's big, slightly dumb fun. The slight bad points are, um, you know, it's not as good as the first two, but that's a very high bar to set, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's partly because the villain who's okay, you don't really see his motivation, and you know, stuff is revealed about his character towards the end. But even then, you're not you're not totally sure. You know, you're enjoying the interaction between the characters. But at the end of the day, you're like, well, you know, why really does he want this weapon that they have and mm. his intent on destroying the uh, the Federation, etc.? Mm. You know, you're not totally sure why he's so hellbent on it. Whereas you can kind of see um, the uh, motivation of the previous villains who were played by Eric Banner and Benedict Cumberbatch. And it's no fault with the acting. I think it's more the writing and the plot line. I mean, that's kind of like the right way around in a way because so often you have films that are just going through the motions and delivering the plot, but mm. not creating any chemistry between the characters. Mm. I mean, certainly that's what I felt in Independence Day. You know, the plot kind of made sense by the yeah. end of it, but you didn't really care about anything that was happening in the middle, and you weren't particularly enjoying anything that was happening in the middle. You know, I'd rather be sitting there laughing than get to the end and think, oh, that doesn't make complete sense, but I had a good time. Yeah, and that's what this film is. Um, so I, I'd go see it, and point of comparison would be, uh, obviously, the newest Star Wars not as good as that, but again, really high bar to set. That's that's a really good film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another point in comparison would be what are the big blockbusters at the moment? One I saw a couple of weeks ago, Tarzan. Much, much better than Tarzan. Yeah. It knows what it's doing. It's fun. You'll laugh, um, and you'll be invested in the kind of quirky chemistry. It's got you know an engaging lead, not someone who's you know being written so he can just act with his abs yeah, or perhaps yeah. maybe a little bit with his pecs. Um, out of push. Uh, no, out of push. So yeah, I I like Star Trek. Okay, I'd, good. I'd recommend it if you're looking for a nice blockbuster, some like fun blockbuster. And I went to see on a Monday evening, which I didn't think would be that packed, like six fifteen. Pretty packed cinema. Yeah, yeah. That's strange because I've never been in a packed cinema down there. I don't think. Yeah, no, it it's was there was a fair few people in there. Okay, cool. Yeah, not as packed as my BFG screening. No. Perhaps not. And that's coming up right after this. Hello and welcome back to Everyone's Critic. We just heard Joe's review of the new Star Trek. Yeah, two thumbs up. Glad you had fun, Joe. I did. Your, your tone of voice <laughs> seems... Accusatory. A little, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, continuing my form of going to see films which I don't enjoy, mm-hmm. um, I went to watch the BFG on Sunday evening at the Everyman in Muswell Hill in one of those uh, in one of those downstairs 
screenings where um, there's sofas. Yeah. You know, and it's two per sofa. But usually you get your own sofa. Yeah, that's how actually I saw Star Trek at the Picture House. On the sofas? Yeah, at the back. But it's like the same price, but you just get one seat in the sofas. Yeah, okay, so in this one... So I paid £7 and you paid 14 Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I paid 14 for a film that's probably twice as bad. Um, so I had to sit next to someone, which immediately yeah. put me in a bad mood. Yeah. I don't like sitting next to people. And I was like right on the edge of an aisle. And uh, there were quite a few kids in the screening as well. It was 8 o'clock, so I think I probably missed the worst of it. You know, a couple of hours earlier, it was probably crawling. going to see the BFG, I think it's kind of to be... Expected. I guess so, but I think it's been a while since I went to see if there were no kids in the Neon Demon, put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> if there were, leave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like 50 year olds walking out, 16 yeah. year olds sitting there loving it. Um, yeah, so, so you know, no surprises. Um, there were parents and kids in the screening, and I had to share a seat with someone else. So I was already in a bad mood. Yeah. Um, and then the film started, and it's Steven Spielberg. Uh, Mark Rylance plays the BFG, although it's an animated Mark Rylance, uh, as in motion capture. Uh, yes, yeah, motion capture. I think that's the technique. Yeah. So it's like part. I guess he's acting, and then they're accentuating it, like Gollum type thing, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Probably that. It looked. It looked a bit like Gollum. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Mark Rylance playing the BFG. Um. Ruby Barnhill playing Sophie. She's. I don't know, she must be like 14 or something, so she's a, she's a new recruit, uh, possibly even younger than that. Jermaine Clement, playing the Flesh Flap Eater. Do you know um, Flight of the Concords? I was gonna, yeah, that's the only Jermaine I know. It's it, like him and Jermaine Defoe. Yeah, exactly. I was like, wait, it's no way. way. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love him. Yeah, so uh, Jermaine Clement, who is in, yeah, people probably heard of Flight of the Concords. Yeah. They're a Brit, present, from... Jermaine, present. Yeah, exactly. From um, New Zealand, I think it is. I think they're New Zealand's fourth most popular. That's right. New funk band. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they're quite. They're very funny, actually. Yeah. Um, and Jermaine's funny, and he's good in this. Actually, he voices the flesh rub eater, who is the leader of the bad giants, basically. Yeah. Um, he sounds a bit like Joey Essex, actually. Really? Yeah. That's it, it was really weird. I, I, for a minute, I thought Joey Essex had somehow bagged a film with Steven Spielberg. That would be amazing. I know. I couldn't believe it. I just, the first <laughs> thing I did was like Google who had voiced him. Um, and then you have the Queen, played by Penelope Wilton, who plays um, the mother in Shaun of the Dead. Oh, nice. Yeah, she's, she's really good value. Uh, Rebecca Hall's in it as well. So you're setting this up well. You're saying what, what a great cast. Okay, yeah, well, so Steven Spielberg, obviously one of the, probably the most successful director of all time. Yeah, Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance, who I haven't seen in that many films, but, you know... But stage-wise is considered to be best actor of his generation. Yeah, okay. News to me, but yeah. there we go. Um, so, yeah, so everything is there to make a, to make a really good film. Yeah. You know? um, and... This is the problem with me doing the review. I don't think it's a bad film, but um, personally, I've never liked Roald Dahl. I went to see Matilda when I was about five. And it was probably the first film I ever saw in the cinema, and I absolutely hated oh, it. Oh, I love Matilda. No, I hate, I oh, hate no. it. I still hate it. I was terrified of oh. Miss Trunchbull. I thought it was She's terrified. a horrible film. I just don't like Roald Dahl's... Do you, is he a bit too twisted for you? Yeah, it, it's kind of too twisted and just a bit kind of too loopy, too stupid. Apparently, he wrote the BFG when he was on... LSD or something and, uh, yeah, and it, really, it, it really shows um, I remember I had the talking book of the BFG when I was younger and I didn't mind that so much but um, seeing it put on the screen um, was yeah was quite a, a weird experience mm-hmm. um, so anyway I'm sure everyone knows the story a uh, young child sees the BFG who is the big friendly giant uh, sees him on the streets of London and because she's seen him and he's a magical creature he has to take her back to giant land yeah. um, so that she doesn't tell anyone, basically. And where the BFG lives in giant land, he's a small giant uh, compared to the rest of them. He's still about 60 foot or something. Mm. Uh, and then there's about six or seven horrible giants that all eat children and are horrible to the BFG. The BFG only eats vegetables. Um, and so the BFG spends his time then trying to protect this new girl that he's brought along, mm. um, protect her from the flesh-eating giants that want to eat her and um unfortunately the my biggest problem with the film is uh the bfg himself um he talks in a language that is just so excruciating to listen to and the accent is really 
it's just really hard to stomach. I, I, I don't like doing this, but I compare it to this comfort that I felt uh, watching and listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks. Really? Yeah, it was really annoying. So and I have play a clip, I play a clip now. Yeah, I listened to a bit of it, and it didn't... Maybe it was okay in a short burst, but it sounded quite, like, sweet. No, it's not. It's not sweet. And I tell you, the language, it, it, it's the use of English, which I, which I really don't like. I am a bit of a sort of... Um, you know, I do like grammar and stuff like that, but... Uh, it's this whole world that Roald Dahl seems to have created and that, like, all these words to describe things which he, mm. he feels there's no word in the English language to describe. Mm. And I've got a little list of words I'm going to read out now. <laughs> um, but let's listen to the BFG first so you can mm. get a sense of what he sounds like because mm. this is the biggest bugbear of the film for me. Where are you going? Uh, to, to work. What do you do for work? Oh, now you's asking me to tell you whoopsy big secrets. I won't tell a soul. How could I anyway? I'm stuck here for the rest of my life. I catch dreams. I want to come. Yeah, well, very like you. <coughs> no. You is staying here. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You is human being, and human being is like straw bunkles and cream to those giants out there. So you're going to stay in a nice, safe place right here. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. I didn't mind that. <clears throat> what, you is human being, you is like straw bunkles and cream? Yeah. Do you not think listening to that for... Well, okay. one hour fifty-two okay, minutes yeah. would get annoying. He talks like that the whole way through. There's nothing endearing about it. This is this is but this uh, is but the Samuel, whole this, this is, is the whole this, co- this, comedic this point of the film. This is the whole the whole film comedically, and mm. it is supposed to be you know as far as I can see, it's supposed to be sort of a fantasy comedy film. Swings also, kids on film. yeah okay, but swings on the axis of this twisted language that they have. So they have this drink called Frobs. Frob scuttle, that where the bubbles go down instead of up. Okay. Um, whiz pops, which are farts. They have whoopsie splunkers as an adjective, which is supposed to mean fantastic. I wouldn't take my kid to see this. Imagine if they You're not imagine learning if they, proper English. Imagine if they came out and started talking like the BFG. What an absolute disaster! Be disgusted if my child did that. I no, but I seriously would be. But do you not jump, think if they had a good time? Jump squiffling, which is something very large. Froth fuggling, which means silly. This is, this is Roald Dahl invented these words because he couldn't find, couldn't find adjectives to describe things well, adequately. Know, apparently he wanted things to sound you know, like they are, apparently. Shakespeare invented a whole bunch of phrases we use. Phrases, not words. These are stupid words. And when Mark Rylance is, when an animated Mark Rylance is saying them to, as a 70 foot giant to a little kid on the screen, and then Jermaine Clement walks in and starts berating him as this massive, oversized giant, I'm just not having a good time. Well, you, you, seem, you seem quite upset, actually. I, I've become more and more upset about it the more I've thought about it. You know, and it's not, this is the thing, it's not that the film is bad, the film is fine, it's not great. John Williams uh, does the soundtrack for it, John Williams of Jaws. Um, Star I'm Wars. He's still going. I know he's eighty-four. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can't remember the soundtrack. It's not a particularly great soundtrack from John Williams. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg has done obviously better films. You know, it's Steven Spielberg. He's, ne- he's never going to do like a terrible film, is he? Mm. You're never going to come out of a Spielberg film and think, "God, that was like a really bad film." He Spielberg, by his own admission, doesn't really like Hook. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's probably that's really the only one I can think of. And well, I liked Hook as a kid. <laughs> It, okay, if you're going to see this as a kid, do you think you could be enamoured by the BFG and the fact that he's being sweet as a little girl and he has words that he's made because, you know, they sound like they should do? I don't know because I think there's something kind of... I think there's something patronising about it. I remember listening to the tape and being slightly patronised because I was thinking people don't really speak like that. And also... This these is ad- bull. Oh well, yeah, it's just bullshit. I mean, these adjectives don't acu- you know, adequately describe anything that can't be described in English language. And the, the problem is the film does operate. You know, it, it has f- few cards up its sleeve, in my opinion, and that is probably the major one in terms of getting the laughs. 
you know, there are some good points. Well, people laughing. Yeah, yeah, people were laughing, like grown-ups and kids. Not a huge number of them, I could hear, but I could hear both generations, you know, laughing. I, I mean, I chuckled a few times, mm. but that's partly because I paid 14 quid and I want to go and... Do you know what I mean? I would have yeah. laughed at anything at that point, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of reviewing it as a film, I don't think it was a terrible film. Mm. I didn't really build any emotional connection between... I thought the girl was fine, uh, mm. but the BFG was the biggest problem. And when you have a central character... Well, it's what we were talking about earlier. When you have a central character that you really, really, really don't like, and I really, yeah. really, really hated the BFG... You know, which is obviously not the point of the film. No. He's the big friendly giant. You know, I just wanted Jermaine Clement to come in and hit him over the head. Um, that that is a massive problem, and I think the problem is that I just don't like Roald Dahl, and I don't like the language of the book. I don't like the language of the film, therefore, and unfortunately for me, I was unable to overcome that dislike. Um, and I have seen glimpses of other reviews that I've said I'm sorry but it, we found it very difficult to listen to the BFG you know fingers in our ears mm. and it was very much the same for me um, the film yeah the film do you think it swinges on whether you like Roald Dahl and if, if you, do you think if you liked the book I think it, yeah, you might like the film yeah yeah I think you probably would like I think you probably would like the film if you like the book because if you like the book then you like all those things don't you mm. and the film is you know it's faithful to the to the material mm. in that sense. You know Steven Spielberg is you know he does his research, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, so it's faithful to material in that sense, and it does it does you know I'm sure it does it justice. The mm. problem is that I don't like the material, and therefore the film doesn't. I don't like the film either. I'm okay. sure the film works. You know it yeah. puts it on the screen well. I mean they spent 140 million dollars on it. Yeah, which is ridiculous. And, you know, the special effects are fine, but it, it goes to show how expensive that... Um, well, yeah, when I was watching that little clip where he's hat-colling her in a hand, I'm like, that doesn't look great. Yeah, it did, it's him. not amazing. No. It's not amazing. I mean, I mean, he looked good. Yeah, he looked good. But That's then, probably what a lot of it was spent on. Yeah, but then you've got to, you've got to do that well with the actual yeah. people in it as well. Do you know yeah. What I mean? um, so, yeah... Penelope Walton, uh, Walton's quite funny as the Queen, and there were some scenes in Buckingham Palace which I quite liked. Um, and uh, yeah, Rebecca Hall's quite funny as like the assistant. Um, so there were a few gags there, but um, it didn't pass the seven last test, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah. there was there was never any belly laughs; it was just sort of chuckles. So yeah, I have to say I, I found it difficult. I found it tough, and um, I. I would. I, this is this is what I would say. I would if you like the BFG, um, then I would. Well, I would question. You know, I I would invite you to revisit. What kind of fool would enjoy what, exactly a, exactly a book like that? Search your soul. Um, no, if you like if you like the material, the original material from the book, then I would probably recommend the film because mm. I think it's probably an accurate portrayal of that. But if you don't like Roald Dahl at all. Like if you if you have a slight inclination not to like mm. Roald Dahl and think that this film is going to change your mind, mm. then it, it, I definitely don't think it will. Okay. Because if anything, it takes you know the the most annoying things about the book mm. and elaborates on them. Mm. And I'm sorry, Mark Rylance. I'm sure you're a great stage actor, but your voice in the BFG is something like it, super Cornish. Excru- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Super Cornish. Super corny you know, super illiterate, I'm afraid. Right. Well, if you don't want any of these outrageous made-up words, um, then don't see the BFG. You it quite like Roald Dahl. diddly, umptiously awful. Yeah. I mean, I quite like Matilda, and you didn't, so maybe, I'm, maybe I might go and see this, despite your... You're not going to go and watch it. Don't be ridiculous. At a later date. I'm probably not going to pay to go watch it. Um, but I might see it at a later date, because I, I quite... I liked Matilda. I like some of Roald Dahl's stuff. <clears> I, didn't, I haven't read the BFG, but... I didn't watch that and I wasn't offended by the made-up language like you were. I think when you're in a... I think when you're in screening and that's all you have... For hours. Yeah, that's all you have for hours and that's really all you have as a form of entertainment. Yeah, okay. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Of him just going on like that for hours and not really much else happening. Yeah. Him running around with the net catching dreams and saying, you know, oh, deliadi Gridly, dumptious, you know, whatever. Then you would dislike it. 
Yeah. So it's a big thumbs down here from EAC, I'm afraid. Right, okay. Well, see Star Trek and not the BFG, apparently. There we go. Well, we got one out of two. It's yeah. better than last week. Exactly, yeah. We just, just advise people just not to go to the cinema. Stay away. Please stay away. <laughs> stay at home and watch The Guard instead. Yeah, exactly. Coming right. up. Is, uh, we're doing Hoop Dreams next. Hoop Dreams next as yeah. our documentary feature. Brilliant. Okay, stay tuned. Welcome back to Everyone's a Critic. So, uh, for one of our extra features this week, we're doing uh, a documentary. Before, we have done When We Were Kings, um, and some of the films of Werner Herzog as well. Yes. Um, so, I thought we'd do Hoop Dreams this time. This is a film that I've been meaning to see for a while. It's supposed to be this kind of definitive sports documentary, and it's on Netflix. You know, if you've got Netflix, you can watch it just at home. That's how I watched it. Mm. Um, so. So it's a film made in the early 90s and it follows these two young guys who, at the beginning of the film, have both got um, half scholarships um, and these are two guys who live in the south side of Chicago in the projects, you know, not a great environment and have got uh, half scholarships to a nice out-of-town, suburban, mostly white um, school to play basketball. Called St. Joseph's. Called St. Joseph's, you know, and they they play basketball and that's why they're in there, you know. Sports is a big part of American schools. You know, they get packed out um, <clears throat> stadiums, basically. That's crazy. To watch high school sport. I mean, yeah, like, at, so at high school level, you have sort of the equivalent of, um, you know, what someone might go and watch, you know, like a minor professional football match or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. It's really big over there. Yeah. Uh, and I think especially, maybe not in the Chicago, because it's a big town, uh, city even, hmm. so there's lots to do there, but in small town America... You know, there isn't a great deal to do, so you go watch the high school team mm. um, or, you know, or the, the college team. So, um, <clears throat> but these two kids, so there's uh, William Gates and Arthur A.G., they talk about at the beginning, they're putting their whole hopes and dreams, hoop dreams, mm-hmm. um, on getting into the NBA. And that's their way out of the ghetto. Um, and you actually begin to realise over the course of the film that that really is. And if not the NBA, then being good enough at high school basketball to be offered a scholarship to a university or even a, um, a junior college or community college to then go on because that's the only way... That get, you're a, gonna, get an education, get, an get education, a degree. Get a degree and get out of um, the ghetto, hmm. as it were. Um, and, you know, so much rides on their success. So they both start out at St. Joseph's and it kind of... But the film, um, and I think... This is, you know, a good point, I'll elaborate on it. It tracks all four years of their high school education. It goes from their freshman year to the end of their senior year. I don't think many films do that really anymore. Mm. You know, we've got constant, like, you know, tweet and Snapchat and Instagram and constantly being refreshed about what someone is doing. Mm. We don't take a, a whole segment of their life. Linear. Kind of like in the, uh, the tradition of the, you know, the 7-Up series. Not, not to do with the drink, but the, the... Do you know about this... So it's Siri, I think it's on ITV, and they took these kids back in the 50s um, when they were seven years old, and then they do a documentary from all the different backgrounds, and then do another follow-up documentary seven years later when they're 14. Like Boyhood. Like Boyhood, yeah. <laughs> it's the Boyhood but, of basketball. Yeah, but it's real. Um, so yeah, Seven Up, where they, you know, they keep on going every seven years, you get an update. But this is throughout the whole four years, and you're updated with their lives. Um, is there anything else from the plot you'd like to add before we play the clip? No, no, no. I think I think I think you got it. So yeah, boys obsessed with basketball. Yeah. See it as their way out of the hood. Yeah, as to their families, really. Yeah, and they want to take their families with them because yeah. you know, in both cases actually, although I guess surrounding them are a lot of families that yeah. are disjointed, and their yeah. families become disjointed at one point or another. Yeah. The, their mothers are both seen as sort of central figures in their lives yeah. and support them the whole way through. Yeah, and pillars and real heroes, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a sort of matriarchal testament in a way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's have, a, let's have a clip. Some of the drug pushers in the neighborhood that give us money to tell us go shop and go get you some. 
They think if we play basketball and they can give us stuff and keep our career going. So that's how we really keep up with the style. While you're sitting here today, you should feel like a million dollars. You should feel so special. You are one of a hundred of the best high school players in this country, the United States. My mother, God bless her, she's in heaven today. She's always said to me, this is America. You can make something of your life. All the coaches from over here, to the stands, please, coaches. Coaches, we got to clear. If you're a player, Somebody up there are going to recognize that you're a player. There's 250 of us here. We're doing it to try to find out who the best players are and try to get them in our program. And there aren't very many kids at any level, including the NBA, that really understand what basketball is all about. So to explain that clip a little bit, um, the beginning part was uh, Arthur Agee, who is in, I guess, the equivalent of like Foot Locker or Sports Direct here, but, you know, in Chicago, um, in a sportswear shop, and he's saying... You know, the drug pushes in his community saying, you know, here's some money, go spend it. You know, we want you to do well in basketball. Hmm. Um, and then it's contrasted with William Gates, who is kind of the real prodigy or seen as a prodigy at the beginning of the film. Uh, and he has gone to this kind of basketball masterclass over summer with the, um, <laughs> the rather over the top intro from that sports basketball commentator. This is America. This is America. My mama said, bless our soul. You can make something in your life. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they have all these scouts from universities keeping an eye on them. So it's, uh, it really shows the contrast between, you know, what people can make of their lives simply through playing basketball, you know, a game at the end of the day. Mm. But I thought that, um, I thought that what the film did and its greatest triumph really was to show that um, the guys saw the basketball as the way out of their situation when they were young and as they get older it began to dawn on them that actually they could be something else in their life Yeah, and that if basketball wasn't going you know, well or they didn't think they would end up in the NBA although they were always driven and had that commitment yeah. that actually you know, they didn't live or die by basketball and that yeah. actually, you know, another life was possible. Yeah. And the greatest triumph of the film, in a way, is even more than a triumph, more of a triumph than one of them becoming a professional player, is one of them actually beginning to realise, oh, you know, I am interested in this study or I am interested in these subjects and being able to live a life that, you know, um, the, that is not defined by their upbringing, you know, and actually basketball, instead of being a way into fame and glory and massive mm-hmm. riches, was a way for them to seg you into a life... Into which, a college education. Into a college education, but, yeah. you know, a life that was a happy life that did them justice, that did their family proud, yeah. that wasn't about becoming a massive star. No, and was mean? just able to not have to live paycheck to paycheck and, you know, that exactly. film... The, some of the families have their power turned off because um, they can't pay the bills yeah because they've lost their job it um, was a massive wake up call I mean not a wake up call but it was just kind of um, you know two white boys living in Muswell Hill yeah. like reviewing this you know it, it just I think even in especially in America as well the the contrast between rich and poor is even greater than in the UK you know? yeah and it's you know, I think it's especially pertinent now and it, you know, the idea that it's called Hoop Dreams you think I don't want to watch a three-hour documentary about basketball, mm. but it, I wouldn't. It you know ostensibly about basketball, but you know it's about race, it's about poverty, and I think you know I think it's ultimately about kind of about the American dream and you know mm. how you make something of yourself, mm. um, and you know how basketball is a means to an end. The mean the means stays the same. Basketball the end starts as getting in the NBA. Could finish as, you know, get a college education, get a, a decent job that you think you'll like and could mm. move your family and your mother out mm. um, of, you know, the what is becoming increasingly violent um, and, you know, drug culture, 
home life. community, yeah, yeah. home life they're, that they're living in. Mm. Um, I I think it has like a really good. If it was just the two leads, I think it would work. But three hours is a bit much. I think the supporting cast, as it were, um, of you know, I say characters, but you know, real people really make it. You talk about the mothers, both the mothers. I think especially. Um, Arthur's mum. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, really holds it together. Because the father keeps leaving. Yeah, he's coming back. Mm -hmm. um, And you have William's brother, Curtis, who is this kind of basically failed um, college star. He was really good, but too hard to handle. And now he's living at home, like, with his mum. Yeah. And actually, it turned out that, uh, sort of, 15, 20 years after the documentary was made, he was murdered uh, as part... He was in a love triangle or something, and someone shot him. Yeah. And Arthur Agee's father was killed... Uh, running away from some robbers or something yeah. on the street. Yeah. So it kind of does bring home the fact that, and despite those two guys had moved on yeah. um, and were now living, as far as I could tell, sort of comfortable existences, you know, the the drugs and the, the, the violence, violence yeah. you know, that culture had still followed their families yeah. and, you know, themselves, you know. It was kind of like a poignant thing of, like, actually... This you can't actually escape this. Do you know what I mean? Even yeah. though they'd escaped it, it, it still kind of seemed to be catching up with them. Yeah, um, especially with Arthur's dad as well. It was like he wasn't really involved in it. He just yeah, yeah, it was nothing to do with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also the coaches as well. Yeah, the so the coach at St Joseph is basically a bastard. Like he's someone the guy, who, white guy with glasses. Yeah, who <laughs> no, will drive you, but William is like, you know, he. Uh, he's the, the the coach sees William as um, I can't remember the name of the guy now. Isaiah, but Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah so Isaiah Thomas was this basketballer in the eighties and the nineties. Um, you know, really famous, successful NBA star who'd gone to the school St Joseph's, and um, the coach sees William as the next Isaiah Thomas and really, really, really works him. And so you know, any any time William brought anything up in his personal life, he'd just be like, drown it out. You know what? Yeah, Don't yeah. worry about them. It's all about you and your basketball. Hmm. Um, and at the end, William's kind of like, well, actually, no, you know, I'm not like that. And basketball became more of a job for me, and I didn't really enjoy it by the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, whereas the coach, and I feel like you're giving a bit of the plot away, because I didn't know anything about the plot, really, apart from the setup, hmm. um, at this public high school. Well, when I say public, I mean like, comprehensive. They call it public in America. Hmm. Um, who seems a little less pushy, but I think quite funnily frank about some yeah. of his players yeah. um, but you know he seemed like actually a pretty good guy and reading up about him afterwards um, off screen you know he was a really generous guy he brought food to the AG family when they were living um, basically with all the power turned off mouth. yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the, the supporting cast around it really make it and the fact that you know I was this is like 20 years ago 20 plus years ago you know, I'm at home but I'm still like cheering on when they're in my bed when I'm watching Netflix. Maybe... Yeah, the basketball scenes were done really well. Yeah, and I'm cheering. Like, yes, William. Yes, Arthur. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and I also it shows you how much can hinge on just having an injury or something. Oh yeah, and, and how these, these tiny control. little decisions yeah. can change, mm. possibly change your life. Mm. Mm. Um, I thought maybe it was a little long but I think it was kind of necessary in a way you know you can watch it in two parts I watched it in one I thought I'd watch it in two but I was so engrossed so I just kept on watching it yeah I watched it in two and it's the kind of it's the kind of documentary where you can kind of split it in the middle there's yeah. logical stopping points yeah you know senior year um, so yeah no I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend it yeah bit of trivia for you is that um, it shockingly wasn't nominated for best documentary at the Oscars even though it was for best editing and something else. Mm. Um, and I think Entertainment Weekly published this big article about how the whole nominating process wasn't uh, for doc- best documentary, you know, it wasn't properly, it wasn't made by documentary makers, a lot of people working against the film. Mm. And because of that, the Oscars changed the rules for nomination processes for documentaries. Because oh, of okay. Dreams. Okay. So, a bit of trivia for you. There it goes, made yeah. this mark. Yeah, and the director, Steve James, made a film called The Interrupters. After which is also about around Chicago and about how uh, I think these group of like former gang members go around trying to you know stop the cycle of violence. Well, I haven't seen that, but I heard, I heard it's very okay. good. But, you know, he's still out and about in the community making important films. Okay, good. Yeah, definitely two thumbs up. I I really really enjoyed that. I probably more than actually I was expecting to. I, I heard it was good, but 
It was engrossing. Yeah, no, it was great. I really liked it as well. Um, so it's Hoop Dreams and it's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. One of the best documentaries on Netflix. I definitely say so.